Check out this cute baby tiger. Let's see the ladies go, oh, I know Wednesday night when there's teenagers in here, every sixth and seventh grade girl is going to do that really big. Oh, I mean, I am not, I'm not an animal person. Like, I, not pets. I mean, I like zoos, but uh, we have a cat. I, I prefer that we didn't. I don't even claim it. I say it's my wife's because she wanted it. My kids wanted it. I don't. But that, that's cute, right? I mean, if you don't like animals. But you and I full well know what that turns into, right? That cute little cuddly baby tiger that, again, those junior high girls are going to ooh and all over the some of us. Oh, that thing turns into a genetically designed killer is what it is, Right? That's why there's a guy named uh, Norman Buwalda who lived in the southwest side of London, and he was one of these guys that raises exotic pets, and he raised a bunch of animals, but one, a baby tiger like that, except it was a Siberian tiger, up until it was a 660-pound tiger. And his story made the news, as it does occasionally, when someone thinks that it's wise outside of a zoo to raise wild animals, they found Norman mauled to death by his own Siberian tiger. 660 pounds versus a 200-pound man. 200-pound man's not usually going to win that fight. It happens. Now, for us, I think there's a lot of things that we have maybe in our lives that could be, could be habits, could be behaviors, things that we do, uh, could be faulty ways of thinking that at one point years ago, they really weren't that big of a deal. And we engaged them and treated them like a cute little baby tiger, but they've grown up and now we're in our 40s, we're in our 50s, and we have these giants in our life that started out small and not as a big deal that have turned because they were not managed well into giants or killers in our life. I tell people, man, on a regular basis, because I, I always want to be open even from the platform, <coughs> not, not afraid to say, I, I am a sinner redeemed by the grace of Jesus. People look at pastors, and not just pastors, but people have a microphone, and we have these expectations of them because they, they teach things that, that and, and teach things to us, and we're like, man, I never knew that. They must know the Lord so much better than I do, and so they must be perfect. I deal with sin and deal with things just like everybody else. I, I would say that I... I I mean, I can't diagnose it or anything like that, but I would, I would suggest or guess that I would be a porn addict. You know, I would also be an alcohol addict. Alcoholism, all in my family, that's why I don't drink. Because I know that if, if I, I don't have any problems with drinking, but if I started drinking beer, I started drinking wine, started drinking something like that, I know because of the addictions that are inside of me where that would lead. And that's why on my phone and on my computers and things like that, I've got software I've got accountability partners that I meet with every week and we talk through things because I know that if I don't, if I don't have those things in place and I don't have uh, safeguards, I, I would be a porn addict. I know that. Because when I was a young guy, probably like a lot of junior high boys, that was, that was intriguing to me, finding pornography, a magazine here or there that someone might have had. And I engaged some things in my mind that at the time seemed very innocent junior high boyish, things that we might, if, if we found a junior high boy looking at, we would go, you know, hey, don't do that. But we would not 
run crazy and send them into counseling or things like that. But the more you engage those things and the more you let those baby tigers grow up, they turn into killers. They turn into giants in your life. And so I've not wanted to engage, engage the 660-pound tiger in my life or the several of them. <clears throat> and so I'm in this process of walking with Jesus on a regular basis to, to surround myself with people, to not let the Goliath in my life or the giants in my life defeat me. For some of us, those, that giant could be any number of things. And we'll talk through some of these over the course of the next six weeks. For some of us, our giant may be fear. Now, we're not walking around like shaking in our boots. Like we're not you know, skittish. Every time a door slams, we jump. But there's, there's fear in our life in such a way that it affects our relationships with other people. <coughs> it affects, <coughs> excuse me for coughing. These allergies are going to kill me before it's over. It affects the way uh, we relate to our spouse. It reflects, uh, affects the way that we uh, connect with our kids. We, we don't engage because we're afraid of what could happen. We, we, we say no more than we say yes because deep down inside of us, and we don't, even, we don't even think of it consciously, but deep down inside of us, there's this fear of, well, what if? If I say yes, what if? Let me say to you guys that are parents, for a second, they have teenagers at home, our, our, our group back here that's had p- kids and graduated out, I, I guarantee you they would affirm this. When you parent out of fear, you usually rob your kids more than you help your kids because you're so afraid of, of what could happen to them. And if I let them do this or if they experience that, well, it's all the what ifs of, of what if could happen that all of a sudden we've, we've so overprotected and oversheltered our kids that we send them out of the home into a world that they're not prepared for at all. Now, there's a balance in there. I'm not suggesting at all that we like go, hey, you got to go check out some uh, bars and strip clubs this weekend, son, so you can get prepared for the, for the, for the real world. Do you know what I'm saying? There's sometimes we become so overprotected because we want to control things. We're so control-oriented because control helps us with our fear. If I can make sure this happens or this doesn't happen, then I won't be afraid. It's deep down inside of us. And for some of us, that's a giant in our life, and we don't even realize it. Maybe your giant is rejection. Maybe you grew up in a performance home where you had to succeed and you had to hit all of these bars in order for you to feel affirmation from a parent. And everything that you do is trying to get the A+. plus. You were an A-plus student in junior high, and you were an A-plus student in high school, and you were an A-plus student in college. <coughs> and now as an adult, you are still chasing after uh, that highest bar, not because you want to do things excellently for the Lord, but because you fear the rejection that might come if you say the wrong thing, don't succeed, don't get that job. If you show up wearing the wrong thing, if you're around the wrong people, or maybe if your career doesn't go the way that you think it should, that the rejection will sink in. And that's become the giant in your life that determines everything you do. See, some of these giants we're gonna talk about, they're not always the things that we see every day. You know, one that we, we don't pay attention at all. In fact, we wouldn't even call a giant. Most of us would go, no, I like that. But some of us, have the giant of comfort in our life. And comfort's not a bad thing. I mean, rest, God tells us to. I mean, we're told a Sabbath every seventh day that we rest and we replenish and, and we're able to 
renew ourselves, but for some of us, we have a giant of comfort, and, and that has caused us to always look for the easy, easy path. And we take the easy path, and you know what happens when we take the easy path over and over and over again? As we're aiming for comfort, we find ourselves complacent. And complacency is a giant that comes from comfort that nobody needs. And here's what happens after you become complacent. And I'm going to say a word, and you're, you're going to go, I, I hate this word. Because this word reminds me of the generation that's coming up below us. Complacency leads to entitlement. Everything's just going to be given to me. And I just sit here in my comfort, and I don't have to do anything. And, 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 and here's the deal. Most of us in here would probably say, that's not my giant, man, I work hard, and I'm not comfortable. Like, I, I'm working 40 hours a week, and then I'm raising kids for another 70 hours a week. I don't even know if that all adds up to the number of hours you have in a week, but it's over and above. I, comfort is not my thing. In fact, if we take a vacation, man, then, it, then, then that, that's just, that's a special thing. But you know how many people are going to walk into this building, maybe even to this room this morning, that are spiritually comfortable? And it looks like this, spiritual complacency. We come and we check off the box that we showed up and we're, we're challenged by the word of God and convicted by the Holy Spirit and we do everything we can to shut that down. I don't want to do that, Lord. Don't say that. I'm not going to step out and do what you're calling me to do. Why? Because it makes me uncomfortable. And then that complacency where we sit and we soak leads to the word that we hate, entitlement. And so we look at a generation below us, we go, oh, they're so entitled. But spiritually, we expect God should do all kinds of things in our lives and that we should grow and that God should gift us this and God should do this for us. Why? Because God, I've shown up here. And God, I, and I've been on the team. I wake up my kids every Sunday morning and we show up. So God, why, why are things not going the way that I should, they should be going? And the Lord might just be going, you know what? Things were going to go this way no matter what. You're just not prepared for the way things are going. You're not hearing my voice as I'm speaking to you to walk through this valley because every time I tried to get your attention and shake things up and cause you to grow and growth is uncomfortable, you shut it down because you had a giant in your life called comfort. Here's another one we might look at. Be the giant of anger. You might have that in your life. I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about somebody that is just, you know, off the rails, full of rage. But you have some things deep down inside that cause you, when things get a little bit out of control, you lash out. <coughs> you, you treat people in a way that does not at all fit the scenario. Because there's this giant in your life it's called anger, and it's probably rooted back to something that happened way back in your childhood or something that somebody did to you that you've never dealt with and wrestled with, and it's sitting there, and it's in charge of your life. And there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of giants. Last one, kind of just mentioned, think there's the giant of addiction. And that could be something like I talked about earlier. It could be pornography. It could be drugs. It could be alcohol. It could be gambling. It could be shopping. It could be the addiction to binge eating. But it may not be one of those big ones. It could be the addiction of controlling your friends. It could be the addiction of having certain kinds of people in your life. It could be all kinds of different things that we're addicted to that, that cause us struggle. 
some people, some people are addicted to being victimized. You know some people like that? Everything that happens, they're always somebody wronged them. And they're, they're living an addiction cycle. I have to feel this way because it's the only way that I know how to live. And it's a giant in their life and affects everything that they do. Affects them as much as it does if they were an alcoholic, a drug addict, a gambling addict, or something like that. So for the next several weeks, we're going to walk through some of these. I'm not sure we're going to even get through all of them. <clears throat> but we're going to walk through them and, 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 and ask the Lord to show us how do we defeat the giant. We're going to base our, our time in 1 Samuel 17. So if you have your Bible, go there. We're going to base it in the story of David and Goliath because Goliath was a literal giant who impacted and influenced the kingdom of God, his people. Now, each week, we're probably going to go some different directions <coughs> through Scripture, but we're going to come back and, and, and kind of make this a, a, a base shop. So this morning, I'm not going to tell you a lot of stories like I normally do because we're going to go through and read 50-some-odd verses of this epic story, refresh our memories of it, and talk about what it means, and at least lay the foundation for the next five weeks of how we deal with giants in our life. And so what, what I want you to know is this. As we're talking about those things, fear, rejection, comfort, addictions, all of those things, that whatever giant you're battling, it is probably big. There's no doubt. But we've got to remember today and through the rest of the next five weeks that that giant may be big, but it is not bigger than Jesus. Okay? So 1 Samuel chapter 17. This might be a familiar story to you if you grew up in church. If you went to uh, church as a young kid, I guarantee you know the story because it's like a vacation Bible school special, right? I mean, what's, what is funner to teach than like Noah's Ark and Daniel in the lion's den and David and Goliath and some, some of those great stories? So let's jump in. Again, we're just going to walk through the whole story to set a, a base for the rest of the series. Chapter 17, 1 Samuel, verse 1. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah and Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up lines and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and, the, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Let me get, here's, a, here's a picture somebody drew. Now, full disclosure, I was not there for the event. So I'm not exactly sure. I'm trusting someone that's done this. But here is Ezekah and Soko. You see those. And so the Philistine army is camped below them, mountain range here. The Israelite army is in the Battle of Elah, and there's, there's a mountain behind it where the people <coughs> gather up to kind of watch and see while the camp's like right below. So this is a picture. And again, I'm assuming... I'm taking some trust here. Somebody that was in Israel shows a picture of the Valley of Elah today. So you can kind of get a, a, an idea of what the landscape would look like. Obviously, there wasn't, you know, the town and things like that. So somewhere right around in this place is where this event happens. Okay, let's look at the next verse. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits in a span. I love this part. We, 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 we get caught up in how big Goliath is. Now, there are some uh, different texts of the Old Testament that are older that there are some discrepancies in the number that's used. So we're not <coughs> exactly sure 
how big Goliath was. If you go the conservative route, and this will, this will ruin vacation Bible school for you. If you go the conservative route, he was somewhere around six foot six. Now, the average person that day and age, average man was somewhere around five six. So still a foot taller than everybody else. So he was either six foot six or the less conservative numbers say that he was up to as tall as nine foot six, which is bigger than the guy in the Guinness Book of World Records that if you walk through and see, bigger than anything we know. So we don't know. And so people who probably land on the more naturalistic side of understanding the scripture tend to lean towards six six. People who <clears throat> believe in the supernatural go, hey, I don't have a problem with God having created things. And scripture tells us some, some other interesting characters along the way of him being nine foot six. But really, that's not what we need to get caught up on. The important thing is two things. One, he's gigantic, right? Whether, whether he's a foot taller than you. I mean, think of somebody coming up to you that's a foot taller than you, where you're at now. That's a big guy, the very least. If he's nine feet tall, that's extremely scary. But here's the other thing we miss. Look what, how the scripture describes him in verse four. They came out from the camp. He walks out of Philistine. We get caught up in the, in the height, but we miss this. A champion named Goliath. He's not just some sideshow freak. He's got a history. He's got a reputation. He is one. He is the reigning heavyweight super heavyweight champion of the world. I mean, I mean, he's a legend probably. People know him by name and he walks out six foot six, nine foot six, this giant. And look at verse five. It gives us a little bit more description. Verse five through seven. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. So this guy comes out, this giant. He's got a bronze helmet, sits on top of his head. He's got this coat of mail that was probably looked like fish scales in time as before chain mail, if you were like a, you know, Conan the Barbarian, you know, person but he's got this armor. So this armor <coughs> that he wears just on his chest is somewhere between 125 and 150 pounds. So if you go, right, let me put this in perspective. I, I was trying to think of what, what would that be? Anybody have uh, like a water softener in your house and you have to fill it up with rock salt? Those bags, like when I go to Home Depot and I grab one of those bags, one of those bags is 40 pounds. So when I pull them out of the back of my car, and I got 40 pounds, I waddle, because I'm not that strong, 80 pounds, and, and throw those things in my garage. Just what he's wearing, the armor on his upper body, weighs almost four, three to four of those. So if he's 6'6", he's a buff dude. I tell you what, I mean, he is a monster at 6'6", or at 9'6". He's got leg armor, he's got a javelin, and he's got a spear. So we, he's, he's hearing this. Let me give you an idea of the, of the spear he's got. So what's that about? I mean, hold up your fingers to about an inch so you can get a perspective of it. I don't have a ruler. What do you think? Okay, so now double that. So two and then a little bit more and a half inches. <coughs> that would have been the diameter of his spear. So imagine wrapping your hand 
around that sphere. So I'm almost six feet. I've got small hands, but that, that's, a, that's quite the weapon. The head of that spear weighed somewhere between 15 and 18 pounds, just the head of it. And then this guy comes out with this like gigantic spear, the javelin. He's got a sword, 120, 150 pounds of armor. He's even got a shield bearer to, to ward off arrows. I always wonder about that. And like, you know, you see that in the movies and stuff. People shoot arrows and the people have the shields, you know. Like, how do you, how do you defend a guy that's nine feet tall? Like, I don't know how you do that. I don't know if he crouches or whatever. But he's got a guy <coughs> that goes out in front of him that basically runs around with a shield trying to protect Goliath. The big dude, right? We got the who and the where. Let's see what happens next in verse eight. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So you get the picture? In the morning, this guy walks out, this giant, full of armor, he's got a shield bearer, and he yells out to the people on the other side of the valley, people up on the mountainside, they're watching it all, and he is challenging them to this one-on-one, -on -one, mano -y mano fight. You, you send out your best warrior. We don't have to kill everybody. We won't slaughter your wife and kids. We'll just do this the easy way. One-on-one, -on -one, winner takes all. Send out, send out your best. And you know, like, the Israelite heavyweight champion of the world is like, oh, no, no, no. Like, no. Everybody's looking at him. They're like, you're the champ. Like, oh, no. Here's the title. I, I, vacate, I vacated. I don't want to go down and face this guy. Because, one, the stakes are high. The stakes are high. It's a nation is at stake. You know, if it was just, hey, come fight me, there's some redneck Israelite in there that's like, I'll take him. You know, I'll do it and get slaughtered. You're not smart enough to know. But, but it's that guy that's walking out to the front that everybody's like grabbing him back. No, 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 no. You're not bright enough to fight this guy. And we know the stakes. It's, it's, it's all of us. We're going to be enslaved. We, we lose everything if we lose this. And so, so here's, here's the crazy thing. There's one single voice that has paralyzed an entire nation. And I wonder, and we kind of take the story of David and Goliath and we apply it to giants in our life. How many times we become paralyzed because of the voice, one single voice of one giant. Talking to somebody the other day, a teenager, talking about feeling like uh, they're, they're not worth anything. Not pretty, not smart, not valuable. And, and the teenager even said that everyone around them says that that's not true. Parents affirm that's not true. Friends affirm that's not true. But there's a giant in a life. One single solitary voice that comes out every morning and defies her to trust her God in what he says. And that's what's happening for the Israelites. So we go to verse 12. 
Now, David, David shows up on the scene. David hasn't been out here. David's not at the battle. David is back home. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. <coughs> in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep to Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. That's significant. We read through David, kind of where David's at, and David's taking care of the sheep while the three oldest brothers at the battle. And then the writer gives us this little tidbit that, that this has been going on now for almost a month and a half. For 40 days, twice a day, morning and night, Goliath walks out <coughs> and challenges everybody, sends somebody. And you know at the beginning of that experience, again, the whole redneck crew was like, yeah, let's get him. And everybody else was kind of tactically thinking through it, and, hey, we're going to win this battle, and they're excited, and, hey, we're going to figure this out. But then nobody moves. So Goliath goes back to his camp. And in the evening, he walks back out, and he's like, just checking. Anybody come in? And they're like, yeah, we're going to get him. Who's going to go get him? What happens on day five? He's been out now, at the end of the day, 10 times, taunting you, challenging you. Nobody's come out. Day five. What about day 15? What about the end of the month? Day 30. He's come out now 60 times and nobody's moving. Can you get a sense of what the morale is? I mean, people are just sitting back. They've given up. There is, there is zero hope. And you know how powerful hope is? Hope is what allows us to move forward. They've got none. I mean, they're, they're, they're just waiting out the inevitable. They're, no one's going to go. No one's, no one's volunteered. Nobody's going to volunteer. We don't know what to happen. We're not going to go get slaughtered, but we've got no hope. That, that's a horrible feeling. 40 days and 40 nights, this giant keeps coming back out over and over again. Verse 17. And Jesse said to David his son, take for your brothers an ephah of the parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. <laughs> Using the word fighting very liberally. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper <coughs> and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle lines, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. Now, I'm not like an expert, like in Old Testament history by any means, but people every day kind of gear up and they go out. I'm like, well, what? I don't understand what's happening really because 40 days, we know what's going to happen. <coughs> My best guess is probably 
you've got people coming from all over Israel. Probably the majority of the army is there, but other people are here. There's a battle of the Philistines, and, and they've come. There's some people that have been up on the mountainside, and they've seen Goliath. But there's some people that, that want to go down each day, like go down either because they're new, and they're going to get close because they're ready for the fight, or they want to go see what this giant looks like. So I think that's happening there. Again, just my theological imagination there. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. That's, I think, I, I see it every day. There's some people that are showing up for the battle and they're like, what's happening? Everybody goes, oh, there's a guy named Goliath. He's like big and he comes out and they're like, why haven't we done anything? Man, he's big, we ain't fighting him. And, and the new guy's like, I'll fight him. I've been on a two-week journey to get here. I'm ready, loaded for bear. Let, let me go get him. And so every day there's a handful of guys, probably there's some guys that have you know, been from a distance that are going down like, we're going to take him. And Goliath comes out, speaks his peace, and they fled from him and were much afraid. That's a big dude. He's scary. Verse 25. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he will come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So now let's throw this on to how big Goliath is. 6'6 six, six or 9'6. We've seen his weapons. We've seen his armor. We've seen that other men run fleeing from the battle. And not only that, it's not just about winning the battle, but it's like the stakes have been raised on the Israelite side. Probably not all at the same time. Saul probably said, hey, Somebody goes and, and kills the guy, I'm going to give, the, I'm going to give you $100,000. And at day five, Saul's like, okay, $300,000. And at day 10, Saul's like, $500,000, half a million dollars, somebody go beat him. Day 15, the pot's at a million dollars. You can, you can marry my daughter. You'll, you'll become a part of the royal family. If you'll go kill him, a million dollars, you marry into my family, you'll live in the palace, you'll eat at the king's table, your kids will be royalty. Nobody budges. Let me throw this on there. Your entire household, your kids and your kids' kids will never pay taxes again. You know what today is, right? Amen. <laughs> never pay. Think about your paycheck. If all the tax they took from you and that you had to pay, you got back just this year, right? We'd have round rock donors for everybody. We could all brought our own. Your whole family, for the, for the rest of the monarchy, no taxes. Somebody, with all of that incentive, that giant is so big that that incentive doesn't move anybody. Verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistines and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest, eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left the few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. Now, we're probably going to circle back over the next couple of weeks to Eliab and this part of the story. But there's some baggage there. 
If you know the story of David, Samuel, the high priest, was led by God to anoint the next king of Israel. Saul is the reigning king. Saul has walked away from the Lord, and God has said, you know what? I've got another king in, in, in mind. He sends Samuel to the house of Jesse and tells him one of the sons of Jesse is going to be the king. So Jesse brings out all the sons, Eliab's the first, and on down. David's not even invited to the party. David's out watching the sheep. All the other brothers are there. And Samuel comes into Eliab, the oldest brother, the biggest, the strongest, the one who's, you know, he's the oldest son, so he's the one that takes care of everybody else, most mature. And Samuel is listening to the Lord, and he goes, nope. And goes down the list, nope, 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 and anoints David as the future king. So this is all, that's already happened. So Eliab's carrying some baggage. Eliab's out fighting a battle, and he's already been rejected by the high priest and seen this little scrawny brother, the, the runt of the family, <coughs> is going to be the next king, and he's not even out fighting. So when he shows up and he starts talking, Eliab's a little perturbed. Probably understand that. Verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. <laughs> you, know, you know Saul had to be a little bit uh, dismayed. When people show up, they're like, hey, there's a guy. He showed up, he's, he's ready to fight. He'll take on Goliath, and Saul's like, go get him. And then, like, you know, 14-year-old David walks in. Hey! And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go fight with a Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. A ninth grader? I don't know if you've seen him, but he really is the super heavyweight champion of the world. I mean, you hit puberty last week. Like, like this is a grown man. His beard is older than you are. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock and went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. I love that. David says, hey, not like David was taking care of sheep and here comes a lion. David said, like, like, like there were times when the lion came and grabbed the sheep. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm a shepherd and the lion takes the sheep, he's already got it. Okay, point for the lion. He beat, he beat me. He got there, right? He wins. No, David said, I went after him. I chased the lion down. I chased the bear down, killed it, and took my sheep back. So David might be like a ninth grade boy, a senior in high school, but he's a stud. He's a little kid compared to Goliath, but he's got a heart. And went after him and struck him, delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, like if that bear decided to turn around and get an attitude with me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord has delivered me from the paw of the lion, and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, <laughs> What do you say? Go, and the Lord be with you, man. All right. I'm a little jacked up after that speech. I mean, you're going to get slaughtered, but go for it. Uh, nobody else. It's been 40 days. What have we got to lose? Then Saul clothed David with his armor. Now, remember this. If you go back to the story of Saul, Saul is head and shoulders taller than everyone else in Israel when he's named king. Saul is a big guy. Saul should have been the one out fighting Goliath. So Saul's head and shoulders, he got this kid, and he gives David his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. 
David strapped a sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, <coughs> for I have not tested them. See, a little side sermon here. Oftentimes, our plan to defeat the giant doesn't work. If it did, we would have already defeated the giant. If the plan you have going to overcome fear, to overcome addiction, to overcome rejection, if it was actually going to work, you wouldn't be sitting here today with that giant still in your life and have already worked. And, and the truth is, our plans usually don't. And when you go back through Scripture, what you find is God's plan is usually different counterculture than what we'd expect. He uses the Davids of the world rather than the Eliabs or the Sauls. So David says, man, I can't wear this armor. It, it is too much. Verse 40. They took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a pouch. That's confidence right there. Not lying. I'd had 20 stones, something like. It picks up five. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with a shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. And he's offended. For he's but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. He doesn't have any scars on his face from taking a blade. He's got both of his eyes, you know, not missing a thumb. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. That, so David is now, David is standing where everybody else has stood. Everybody has gone before him for 40 days. They've heard that speech. <coughs> he said, now Goliath is not bored. <coughs> He's not 40 days in like, seriously, guys, fight me. I ain't no enemy. I'll just run, take off. This kid's standing there and Goliath is, is, is more enraged and more angry. He's the scariest he's been. And David stands there in the midst of what everybody else experienced and when they turned around and run. And I love this. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin? I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you've defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my head. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I'll give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, and that all the earth may know there's a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Come on now. Like, like what? David, that's some good Old Testament trash talk right there. I mean, this kid like looks at the giant. He's like, bring it. I'm about to cut your head off of your neck. And you know, Goliath has to be like, shield bear, what's he thinking? Like, looking back at Goliath, like, uh, I don't know what's going on. My mind's spinning. Now, here, here's the sad thing. This makes, this whole story makes for an epic Hollywood movie, right? I mean, there's tension, there's drama. Verse 48, you know what happens when the Philistine arose and came out, came and drew near to meet David. Look what David did. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David runs to the battle, put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. 
It's the worst Hollywood ending there is, right? I mean, there's no long battle scene. There's no Goliath. Because, you know, in a good Hollywood movie, David needs to be laying on the ground with Goliath, like about to kill him with a sword. He's holding Goliath's hand as the sword comes close. Nope. It's like, let's fight. Bang, game over. Like those one stone. He's got four left, you know, in his pocket. And he's, and he's dead. Look in verse 50. Let me find my spot. Where'd I go? I covered up stuff in my notes. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword, the giant sword, and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And the Philistines saw that the champion was dead. They fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine. This is interesting. David took the head of the Philistines and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Takes the head back with him. Now, I want to give you a key to this story. We've read the whole thing. Over the next six weeks, I hope you'll read it. Maybe some different translations, get the story. But here's the most important part of the story. The key to the next five weeks that we journey, the key to understanding what we go and what we do with our application today. Every time we've heard this story about David killing Goliath, and every time we've heard it, like in, in March Madness, the 16 seed and the 1 seed, the David and Goliath, we get a mistaken understanding of the story because in this story, you and I are not David. And that, that's, that's where we've read the story wrong all of our lives. Like, like we read the story and we went to camp as a kid and somebody preached David and Goliath and we're like, yes, I'm gonna go kill the giant. If you could have killed the giant, you would have done it already. The key to understanding this story and the key to overcoming the Goliath, the giants in our life, is to understand who David actually is in the story for us. David is Jesus. Jesus is the one who's run to the battle. Jesus is the one who showed up and said, my father's name is not going to be dishonored. Jesus is the one who showed up as the, the carpenter, as the shepherd, as the one who no one thought would actually be the king. Jesus didn't look like the Eliab. He didn't look like the Saul. He came as the Messiah. He looked differently. He came as the David. And he ran to the battle. Now, here's the good news. Here's what's most important. Now, we've got to figure out how do we walk in this. The giant in your life has already been killed. So the cross did. And the resurrection. The giant's already dead. Jesus has already defeated him. We should be living in victory already. And what we have to figure out in the next five weeks with some of these giants is how do we live in the victory that's already happened? I want you to look at a passage of scripture real quick. Second Peter chapter one, put it up on the screen. Peter says this, his divine power has granted to us all things. God's divine power has given you and me all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. You have God's 
promises him on your side so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Here's the cliff notes, the layperson version of what Peter's saying. You and I have the power of God already in us. We have the access to it to overcome the sinful desires of the world, to overcome corruption, to live free. We've got the power already inside of us to overcome because the giant's already been defeated. It's like this. Imagine if Bill Gates walked in, because Bill Gates could do this. And Bill Gates got out his checkbook and wrote you a $1 billion check. That would change your life forever, wouldn't it? I mean, that's, that's youth ministry money right there. I mean, he writes you a $1 billion check paid out to you. He gives it to you and you go, I don't know what, Bill Gates, this is the greatest thing. Like, I am forever going to be a Bill Gates champion. I'm gonna talk great about Bill Gates. I'm getting rid of every bit of Apple product I've ever bought or thought about buying. I'm only Microsoft. And anytime somebody talks Microsoft, Apple, I'm with Microsoft because Bill Gates is the, is the best. Bill Gates should, in this scenario, sound a little bit like Jesus. He gave you a billion-dollar check to change your life, and I want to talk about him. And I'm on his team, and I'm his advocate. I'm all about him. And you take the billion-dollar check, and you take it home that he's given you. And you go, man, this is the greatest thing Bill Gates ever gave. And you frame it and you hang it on your wall. For all your friends to see. I met Bill Gates. He gave me a billion. You know what your friends are going to say? You're an idiot. You have access to a billion dollars and you framed it as a trinket, as a token of an experience and hung it on your wall. That's what Peter's saying. You have the power of God himself to take part in the divine nature of God, the power to overcome sin and death and to live already over the defeated giant. And we've gone, thank you, Jesus. I love that. I'm going to hang that saying on my wall and show it to everybody. So we haven't learned how to walk in it. So, Here's the what do we do. I want to go back. It's kind of gruesome. I'm going to give us all an application. I'm going to ask you to do one thing this week. I'm sure by now you've probably identified at least one giant in your life. I probably didn't have to go through things like comfort and addictions and things like that. You probably could have come up with something. If you didn't, then your assignment's a little bit different. This week, I just want you to pray, Lord, what is it that's a giant in my life? <coughs> you just pray that every day. And then listen, let the Holy Spirit speak of what, what giant has been laying there dead that still got you cowering. But if you know what that giant is, and we're going to talk about some ways that we engage with the power of God in the next five weeks to live free. If you know what that giant is, I, I want you to, to go back real quick to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Here's what it says in verse 15. David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And the Philistines saw their champion was dead. They fled. David, guys, we have to love this story. Sixth, seventh grade girls are going to ooh and ah over the Siberian tiger and then go home like forever like damaged because David goes and chops his head off. 
and grabs, knocks the helmet off and grabs him by the hair and holds up that head, signifying victory. And what happens to the Israelites? And here they come running down the mountain. And David takes the head back to Jerusalem to signify and to remember the giant's dead. So here's your application. If you know what it is, you don't conceal the severed head. It's the trophy of what God has already done. Here's what happens. Sin loves to hide out in the darkness. Loves the darkness. Sometime this week, whatever that giant is, this is going to be hard. But if you've been walking through, when we did the snakes, and we were kind of giving you application to do to walk in obedience to Christ, those were hard instructions. Walking with Jesus isn't easy. Find somebody. Small group, accountability people, one or two, maybe your spouse, and you bring that chopped off head into the light. And you say to some people, here's the giant that's been in my life. Because the more you keep it in the dark, the more power it has over you. What you'll find is when you start to bring things into light, and this is why Christian community is so important why small groups and relationships are so important because it gives us the relational highways and byways in which we can have this type of relationship with somebody that we know well enough and deep enough and are committed to to say, this is the giant in my life. I realize that Jesus has already slain it, but I'm going to bring the severed head out into the light and say, no longer is this going to have power over me. And it's scary. It's the first step to freedom. So you got to decide what you do. The giant's dead in front of you. Still got power over many of us. You going to chop off the head and bring it to the light? Or continue on as we've been doing for the last however many years of our life?